Reflections on Shakespeare's The Tempest by Gil Bailey Produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 3 Early in Act 1, Ariel comes to Prospero and says, uh, You were going to set me free. And he complains about not being set free. And Prospero is somewhat vexed by that, and he says to him, uh, you, you forget what I saved you from. And so he recounts it for him and for us. Prospero says, Hast thou forgot the foul witch Sycorax? Hast thou forgot her, this damned witch Sycorax, for mischief manifold and sorceries terrible to enter human hearing? From Algiers thou knowest was banished. For one thing she did, they would not take her life. This blue-eyed hag was hither brought with child, and here was left by the sailor. Thou, my slave, as thou report, reportest thyself, was then her servant. And for thou wast a spirit too delicate to act her earthly and abhorred commands, refusing her grand hest, she did confine thee by help of her more potent ministers in her most unmitigable rage into a cloven pine, within which rift imprisoned thou didst painfully remain a dozen years within which space she died and left thee there. And Caliban was then, her son born in the meantime, was then the ruler. A couple of things I want to point out about this passage. First is, there is a striking similarity in pattern. Sycorax was banished from her former place, Algiers, the reason she was, she was not killed, she was spared, she was with child. The child, she and the child ended up on a desolate island as exile. Well, that's strikingly parallel to what happened to Prospero and Miranda. I think Shakespeare's inviting us to notice the, par the parallel. In a way, he's also inviting us to see, uh, shortly thereafter, Caliban says to, to Prospero, this island's mine by Sycorax, my mother, which thou takest from me. And he's absolutely right. He's absolutely right. What we're seeing here is what we would call good usurpation. You see, but it's 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 an usurper comes along, and takes over. By force, Caliban's ruling of the island that was his. Shakespeare understands that traditional political authority, however surrounded by the nimbus of, of awe, is always based on a prior violent rebellion against traditional political authority. That was the point of that brief Odysseus speech in Homer. When Odysseus is holding the, the staff, the symbol of authority, he says there's only one person authorized to hold this staff up at critical moments like this as he holds the staff up. And he says, it's that guy over there. So there's one level of irony. The second level of irony is the reason Agamemnon's authority can never be challenged is because unchallenged authority has been ordained by the god Zeus. But then he slips up and he, he uh, mentions that Zeus is, quote, the son of crooked-minded Kronos. And it reminds us that Zeus overthrew his father. So Zeus is an overthrower of traditional authority, but he is now ordained that nobody overthrow traditional authority, which is the pattern. This is always the pattern. 
I think Shakespeare is completely familiar with that. And he's saying to us, you know, you choose. Uh, this, in, in the, this is a kind of realpolitik. I'm not recommending. I don't think Shakespeare is recommending. But I think he says this is the way it is. Prospero is an usurper. Prospero has overthrown what, what was the existing authority, possession, being nine-tenths of the law, on this island. That's not the most important part of the speech, however. I've made too much of it, perhaps. For me, the most important part of the speech is the parallel between Ariel and Prospero. Ariel was bound up in a pine tree, the trunk of a pine tree, for 12 years. And, and Prospero has been isolated on this island for exactly 12 years. So the par- the, there's a tremendous connection here between Ariel and Prospero. Ariel and Prospero, if you, if you will, are the, are the two presiders at, the, at what, what kind of resolution there is at the end of this play, which is not complete. Uh, but they are the ones who are capable of pulling off what it, whatever it is they're capable of pulling off. And I think it is because they have both been, they've both served time in confinement. What does it mean? This is, this is another instance of, of a Shakespearean pun that, that the critics don't notice, I think. I mean, that's an arrogant thing to say. But uh, just because I noticed it, maybe a thousand people noticed it, as far as I know, but the people I've read haven't have attended to it. Ariel is bound in a cloven pine. The pun here is that pine is a verb. It comes from the Old English, which means anguish, grief, bitterness, torment, uh, and, it in, and it implies immobility. To pine is to be, is to ache and have no way to turn the ache into melodrama. Our tendency is always to turn grief into grievance, as I've tried to say. Our tendency is to take those, that, that pain and angst and use it as anger, use it as motivation, uh, use it as a competitive edge or something like that, but to turn it back into the service of the melodrama. But here you have two uh, characters in this play who have been stuck in the pine, if you will, for 12 years. And there's something about being stuck in the pine for 12 years that has a tremendous transformative effect. The other astounding thing that happened uh, in the last week was that Nelson Mandela uh, traveled to North America. And here is a man who has been stuck in the pine, if, if you see what I'm trying to say, the parallel I'm trying to make. Not able to convert it back out into melodrama, but stuck with it, where it cooks and it cooks. And in a way, Shakespeare's presenting a kind of little recipe here. So you get stuck in a pine for 12 years and then the little, uh, you know, the little timer goes off and you get to come out and you're capable then of behaving in a much more true and real way because you have interrupted the instinctive response to turn it back into sociodrama. Prospero says to Ariel, it was mine art when I arrived here it was mine art when I arrived, and 
heard thee, that made gape the pine and let thee out. So Prospero has the artistic capacity to open the pine up and let the spirit out. Now that's a miraculous thing, because it's it may be the it may be the the only really practical thing in the social realm that can be done. Otherwise, our pines become the perpetuation of some uh, of pining, you know. And there's a little I have here as good an opportunity, good an excuse as I'm going to have to read you a little poem from the from the Sea in the Mirror, Auden Sea in the Mirror. This is attributed to the master and the bosun. And uh, I read it to you because it's an example of what happens if you are not trapped in the pine and are able to take the, to take the agitation, the, the, uh, the disappointment, the anxiety, the torment, it's whatever it is, and convert it right back into the coin of the realm, the, so- the sociodrama. Their poem goes like this. At Dirty Dick's and Sloppy Joe's, we drank our liquor straight. Some went upstairs with Marjorie and some, alas, with Kate. And two by two, like cat and mouse, the homeless played at keeping house. Their wealthy Meg, the sailor's friend, and Marion, cow-eyed, opened their arms to me, but I refused to step inside. I was not looking for a cage, in which to mope in my old age. He doesn't want to keep it confined in some way. And the next four lines are these. The nightingales are sobbing in the orchards of our mother, and hearts that we broke long ago have long been breaking others. One takes the heartbreak and turns it into somebody else's heartbreak. The kind of forgiveness that that happens at the end of this play, which is complete as far as Prospero is concerned, is not complete as far as some other people are concerned, but it's complete as far as Prospero is concerned. It's only capable, at at least if you see this as a formulaic thing here that Shakespeare is doing, it's only capable if you spend your 12, whatever, years, lifetimes, minutes in the pine. And then one's capable of breaking the chain of heartbreak and forgiving instead of repaying uh, or replicating. I want to go to to the question of Miranda and Ferdinand. At the end of the play, our attention is called two things, forgiveness and marriage, two sacraments, so to speak such as they are in this play. And they each have a, a preface. The preface to forgiveness is 12 years in the pine. And the preface to the marriage is, what I, is this material we're about to look at. I want to go back to when Ferdinand and Miranda first see each other. Now, Shakespeare is perfectly capable of doing what most of us would obviously do. He's perfectly capable of having Miranda and Ferdinand bump into each other, wandering about the island, and say, how do you do? But he does not do that. It starts this way. Ferdinand comes 
stood on the edge of the stage. And Prospero says to Miranda, The fringed curtains of thine eye advance and say what thou seest yon. And this is like the, the, the man born blind in the Gospel of John. He, he, first he sees very vaguely and then he has to get another hit of it and then he sees completely well. She says, uh, what is it, a spirit? She doesn't quite, she needs some help. She needs some help. And, and that's indicated, he says, the fringed curtains of thine eye advance. And Prospero gives her some help. She said, well, he says, well, I'll help you. This gallant, which thou seest, was in the wreck, and but he's something stained with grief, that's beauty's canker, thou mightest call him a goodly person. He hath lost his fellows and strays about to find them. Well, she, he says, here's what you can know about him. He's gallant, and he's a goodly person, and he's a suitable object for your compassion and pity. You see? There's something stained with grief that's beauty's canker. And he hath lost his fellows and so on. Immediately, Miranda gets it. And she now says, I might call him a thing divine. For nothing natural I, I ever saw so noble. And Prospero, in an aside, says, It goes on, I see, as my soul prompts it. So, this is, to, to use the Girardian term, mediation. Prospero is mediating the initial encounter between Miranda and Ferdinand. And we, of course, think those encounters don't need mediation. And one of the reasons we can say that is because we have so, the, the, the role of the mediator is so, uh, suffused in our cultural environment that we get it without it even surfacing physically. Uh, it's, it's always there. But in, in this case, what Shakespeare's indicating is that M Miranda needs a mediator. She can't seem very clearly without this mediator. And so he helps her understand. So he starts with her not even being able quite to see him. And very quickly, she says he's divine. And of course, when she says the word divine... Then the beeper goes off. Says, whoop, whoop, that's that part, that phase one is over. Phase one is over. It's now time for phase two. And immediately Prospero says to, to Ferdinand, A word, sir. A word, good sir. I fear you have done yourself some wrong. A word. Very harsh. And Miranda says, Why speaks my father so ungently? And that's the question. We, we want to ask that question in a second. Prospero says, Soft, sir, one word more, and an aside. They are both in either's powers, but this swift business I must uneasy make, lest too light winning make the prize light. Now, that's just what Cressida had said in Troilus and Cressida. That's that understanding of how, of how there must be some kind of resistance, some kind of obstacle, some kind of barrier between the potential lovers in order to enhance, uh, exacerbate the, the, the love passion. 
So that was an aside. And then he says, back to uh, Ferdinand, one word more. I charge thee that thou attend me. Thou dost here usurp the name thou owest not and hast put thyself upon this island as a spy to win it from me the Lord on it. You're a spy. And Miranda defends him. And Prospero turns to her and says, Speak not you for him, he's a traitor. Come, I'll manacle thy neck and feet together. Sea water shalt thou drink, thy food shall be fresh brook mussels, withered roots, and husk, wherein the acorns cradled. Follow me. And uh, Ferdinand makes this empty gesture of resisting, and Prospero overcomes him immediately. And Miranda pleads for him again. And he says, What? An advocate for an impostor? Hush! Thou thinkest there is no more such shapes as he, having seen but him and Caliban foolish, wench, to the most of men this is a Caliban, and they to him are angels. See? This guy's nothing. Now, he started off by saying, he's, he's, he's gallant, he's a goodly man, he's to be pitied, and it works, she loved him, said he's divine, and all of a sudden now he's a traitor, an imposter, a spy, and, and, and he's a monster like Caliban compared to other men. What's going on? He has, first of all, gone out of his way to enhance Miranda's estimation of him. And once it was at the, at the peak, she's referring to him as divine, he steps in and demolishes it. He's nothing. Stay away from him. Now, to understand this, I think we need to go back to an earlier scene. Miranda had said, why speaks my father so ungently? And the answer to that question is back in an earlier scene, I think. And again, it's Gonzalo's romanticism that's the cute for us. Gonzalo is talking about how they have married uh, the king's daughter, Clarabelle, to the king of Tunis, and then they... Uh, were caught up in the storm and were shipwrecked. And he praises Clarabelle as a paragon. Uh, and Adrian says, Tunis was never graced before with such a paragon to their queen. And Gonzalo, not since widow Dido's time. And Antonio, now, you know, Gonzalo and Antonio, and Gonzalo and Adrian are the romantics, but Antonio and Sebastian are the cynics. And Antonio said, widow? A pox on that? How came that widow? Widow Dido? We'll talk about Dido here in a second. Sebastian says, what if he had said widower Aeneas too? Good Lord, how you take it. And Adrian, who's, who's usually a romantic along with Gonzalo, says, widow Dido, said you? You make me study that. And this is Shakespeare's way of saying to us, pay attention to this part right here. Sebastian later on says, Bait, I beseech you, widow Dido. Drop, uh, you know, leave her out of this, please. Antonio, oh, widow Dido? I, widow Dido. He's, what to make of, so over and over and over again in this passage, we get this strange reference to widow Dido. And then it's dropped and nothing else is said. Well, obviously, we're, been, we're invited to 
think about Dido. Now there were two traditions about Dido. Dido was the was the uh, the great uh, founder of Carthage. And there's one tradition which is that her husband Sicius was killed. She was banished uh, by her brother Pygmalion, and uh, she went to Carthage where she began to build her her city. And then a foreign king came and tried to impose a, a forced political marriage on her. And she resisted him by committing suicide. That's one tradition. The other tradition is the tradition of Virgil, which is that Aeneas lands, and she falls passionately in love with Aeneas. And, uh, and Aeneas, they have a rendezvous, and she, uh, Aeneas leaves and she kills herself. And we'll attend to that one in a second. Before we get to that one, I just want to talk about the first one. Obviously, Gonzalo knows the first tradition, which is that she's noble and chaste, famous for her, her loyalty to her dead husband. So loyal, in fact, that she commits suicide rather than enter into this political marriage. That's the one that Gonzalo has in mind. And the one that, that Sebastian and Antonio have in mind is the Virgil one of her falling passionately in love with Aeneas, the opposite of that. This week, I will focus most on the second tradition, the Virgilian tradition of, of Dido, and maybe take up the other tradition next week. Both traditions present a problem for Prospero, because both of them touch on a dilemma that he has. The Virgilian tradition touches on his dilemma in that it represents what happens when two people meet and a pa passions are awake that are not constrained by cultural form. The passion, in, the passion of Dido and Aeneas is a mediated passion, as is this passion that's just been awakened in Miranda for Ferdinand. In Virgil's Aeneas, Aeneas lands at Carthage, and he, he tells, begins to tell a story of the woes of his journey, evoking instant pity on the part of Dido. But pity is not enough to break down Dido's loyalty to her dead husband, Sicius. Venus, who is always the patron saint of Aeneas, sends her son Cupid, disguised as Aeneas's son, Iulus, into this scene as the mediator. See, Cupid is always the mediator, of course. So he's now disguised as Aeneas' small boy, and he's mediating the passion of Dido for Aeneas, which is what Prospero just did. Prospero just mediated the passion of, a, of Miranda for Ferdinand. Here's how it goes. I'm reading from the English translation of Virgil's Aeneas. The boy, who is in the form of Iulus, but is really Cupid, the boy pretends to satisfy his father's great love by hanging on Aeneas's neck in an embrace. So Dido is looking over here at this small child embracing his father, hugging him around the neck. Then he seeks out the queen, Dido. Her eyes cling fast to him and all her hearts. At times, she fondles him upon her lap. So the boy goes over and 
hugs Aeneas, and then he comes over and sits on her lap. And he's the mediator of this passion. For Dido does not know how great a god is taking hold of her poor self. But Cupid, remembering his mother Venus, slowly begins to mist the memory of Sicius, and with a living love, tries to surprise her longings gone to sleep, her unused heart. It's a really marvelous passage, and tremendous passion is awakened in Dido for Aeneas, mediated by Cupid. Aeneas' story ends with this. He's speaking. It is here, after all the tempest of the sea, I lose my father and At last, he ended here and was silent and rested. He's talking about how just before he got to Carthage, he suffered through the tempest of the sea and lost his father. Well, do you recognize what the parallel? Ferdinand suffered through the tempest of the sea and lost his father. He's showing up looking for all the world like a kind of Aeneas. So we have to be careful because what happened to Dido could happen to Miranda. What happened to Dido? Book three ends with the line, at last he ended here and was silent and rested. Book four opens with the words, too late. The queen is caught between love's pain and press. She feeds the wound upon her vein. She is eaten by a secret flame. His face, his words, hold fast her breast. Care strips her limbs of calm and rest. The supple flame devours her marrow. Within her breast the silent wound lives on. Unhappy Dido burns and roves the city insane with passion. A hunting party is arranged. They all go out on a hunting party, and in the midst of it, a great storm. And seeking shelter, they enter a cave together, Dido and Aeneas. Lightning, the the text says, lightning fires flash, the upper air is witness to their mating. And from, so, in the cave, critical moment, they consummate this passion. And from the highest hilltops shout the nymphs, That day was her first day of death and ruin. For neither how things seem nor how they are deemed moves Dido now. And she no longer thinks of furtive love, for Dido calls it marriage. Okay? In Act 3, Scene scene 1, Miranda, suddenly abandoning decorum, says, Hence, bashful cunning! And prompt me, plain and holy innocence, I am your wife if you will marry me. So she has Dido's passion. But here's what comes of Dido's passion. As soon as it's consummated, Aeneas becomes, the, the, we have the famous morning after. Now it's, it's uh, interpreted differently, of course, because Virgil has great historical uh, ambitions for, for Aeneas. So Mercury, the god, comes and says, you've got to leave and go take care of your business. So he starts to leave. And the rumor is going around that he is leaving. And it makes Dido go wild. Her mind is helpless, raging frantically inflamed. She raves throughout the city just as a bacchanate when each second year she is startled by the shaking of the sacred emblems 
The orgies urge her on. The cry, O Bacchus, calls her by night. Cytheron incites her with its clamor. Cytheron was where the Dionysian orgies took place. What is let loose here is this absolute frenzy. The Dionysian orgies ended in sacrificial rites. Prospero puts on the hat and the rapier that are indicative of his ducal status. And as I now read the play, that's a, that's a terrible turning point. He decides to cast off his magician's robes, staff, book, etc. But there being only two options, as he sees it, he puts on the garments, if you will, of a politician. And the tone, as I read it, of the text changes corresponding. We have this one moment when he is somewhere in between magician and politician. And he is able to be, to be, uh, to preside or to be present or, or to be, to provide the conditions for a sacramental kind of shift in things. But then he puts on his hat and his rapier. And something, uh, something else begins to happen. And notice he has just talked about forgiveness. He says, I forgive thee. But as soon as he puts on his hat and his rapier, he says in an aside to Sebastian and Antonio, so that the king, Alonzo, won't hear it, he says, were I so minded, I here could pluck his highness's frown upon you and justify you traitors to prove that you are a traitor. At this time, I will tell no tale. Now, that does not, to me, feel like somebody who has just experienced genuine forgiveness. It seems to me somebody who is manipulating the situation, who is essentially uh, intimidating these two people with the possibility that he may tell Alonzo when he feels like it and uh, have them prove traitors. It's as though he's saying, I can have you tried for treason. So if I were you, I would fall in line. In other words, something enters here that is like the power game. Little touch of it at least, if not more than that. And Sebastian says, the devil speaks in him. And I think he's right. This is to take nothing away from Prospero. This is just to recognize that the devil gets into it. In, into our good intentions. At the moment when we decide to have it turn out our way. It sounds as though Prospero is learning, quote, how to grant suits, how to deny them, who to advance, who to trash for overtopping, which is what he accused his brother Antonio of learning when he overthrew him. Prospero says to Antonio, For you, most wicked sir, whom to call brother would even infect my mouth, I do forgive thy rankest fault, all of them, and require my dukedom of thee, which perforce I know thou must restore. And what strikes me here is the tone of that. You most wicked sir, whom to call brother would even infect my mouth, I do forgive thy rankest fault, and require of thee my dukedom. 
which perforce I know thou must restore. Again, a hint here of power play. And certainly the language doesn't sound like a wholehearted, genuine forgiveness. There are two very sobering moments, subtle but sobering moments, in the last part of this play. And one of them is when Prospero puts on the hat and the rapier of the duke and begins to behave like one. Well, I'm now obliged to ruin this play for you. Prospero is now in the presence of his former enemies, and he has uh, forgiven them with uh, various degrees of uh, sincerity and conviction. And Alonso, the king who has been, who was before Prospero uh, lost his dukedom, was Prospero's political enemy. Alonso says to Prospero that he has lost his son. You see, he hasn't been informed about what's really going on in the island. He says, I have lost my son. And Prospero says, I have lost my daughter. And Alonso says, when did you lose your daughter? And Prospero says, in the last tempest. Now, we read this and we think, well, this is, uh, you know, the, the, the father at the wedding saying, well, I didn't lose a son, I, I gained a daughter. So, you know, this kind of thing. I lost uh, my daughter. But I would suggest that we might read that much more seriously. That Prospero has lost his daughter much more profoundly than that and that he knows it or that he's beginning to know it. Right after he says, I have lost my daughter, he draws back the curtain and we see at the back of the stage Ferdinand and Miranda playing chess. And this, of course, is a great revelation to Alonzo and the others that Ferdinand's still alive. But remember, Prospero says, I lost my daughter in the tempest and then he pulls the curtain back and she's playing chess with Ferdinand. Now, I think we're invited. The, the Aeneas, Dido Aeneas story is very much behind this play. This play, in a sense, is a rewriting of the Dido and Aeneas story. In the, the Virgil's version, Virgil's version of the Dido and Aeneas story, we would have pulled back the curtain and found them mating in the cave. You see? So this is in stark contrast, and in a sense in blessed contrast, to that. In Shakespeare's time, chess had a lot of sexual innuendos, sexual connotations to it. Shortly after this play, Thomas Middleton wrote a play called A Game at Chess, which had to do with uh, using the chess game as part of a sexual game. And Eliot, by the way, when Eliot wrote The Wasteland and a section of The Wasteland entitled The Chess Game, he picks up on this theme from Middleton's play where se sexual gaming and uh, the, the board game chess are synonyms for one another. So there's some innuendo about this. But what I think we're, what we're encouraged to see here is that there has been a kind of sublimation of the sexual gaming 
into this parlor game, which is far better than coupling in a cave and all the disaster that flows from that. However, then we, in a sense, eavesdrop on Miranda and Ferdinand, who seem unaware that the world has now been let in on their chess game. And Miranda says, sweet Lord, you play me false. She says, you're cheating. And Ferdinand, no, my dearest love, I would not for the world. And of course, when we're now towards the end of Shakespeare's, Shakespeare's about to bow out and leave the stage. He's not wasting these things. We load these things up with connotation. I wouldn't cheat for the world. Lose your soul and gain the world. You see that kind of thing? And Miranda says, yes, for a score of kingdoms you would wrangle. Wrangle being a synonym for cheating. For a score of kingdoms you would wrangle. And I would call it fair play. And I would call it fair play. That is where Prospero lost Miranda. Because when this whole thing began, Miranda was the Immaculate Conception. She had not been, she had not been uh, imbued with all of that gaming stuff, the mimetic melodrama. She didn't know about it. Prospero tried to tell her this, for him, very profound story about how it was he, his dukedom was wrenched from him and so on, and she fell asleep. She didn't have any interest in it whatsoever. Those, concerned, those concerns seemed utterly empty of value. And now she looks across at her future husband and she winks at him and she says, I know you'll cheat when it comes to kingdoms and I will call it fair play because, after all, kingdoms are important things. Now, Prospero has gone out of his way to make sure that she not lose her innocence and she has lost her innocence and he has lost his daughter. Miranda has been made worldly wise. The chess game, of course, is a game uh, which, for all of its sexual connotations in Shakespeare's time, is a game really about capturing the queen. There's a sexual connotation. But it's really a game about uh, uh, political maneuvering. See? How to play, how to live one's life vis-a-vis. How to win in the maneuver. So, when Prospero says, I lost a daughter in the Tempest, I think we're thrown back on this play. And we're, and we remember that Prospero mediated the desire of Miranda for Ferdinand. He said, let me show you a, a, a rare sight. He's a goodly man and all that. Remember that? And he's the one who brought the ship to his island, wrecked it and brought and took special care that Ferdinand be set apart by himself and brought in at the right time, choreographed the whole thing. What's going on here? What's going on here is a political marriage arranged by the father. The two kingdoms in Shakespeare's time, hostile kingdoms, were more likely to be reconciled through a marriage than through a summit meeting. And that's exactly how the hostilities in 
in uh, the late Renaissance were resolved, political marriages. And Prospero is about to resolve his hostility vis-a-vis Alonzo with a political marriage, his daughter and Alonzo's son. To try to demonstrate that this is the, an underlying theme in this play, let me go back to a couple of things. In scene one of Act Two, and, and what I'm about to quote to you would be completely gratuitous unless, unless it's not. Alonzo says, because he can't find his son, he thinks his son's been lost in the shipwreck, would I had never married my daughter there, meaning in Tunis, for coming thence, my son is lost, and in my rate she too, who is so far from Italy removed, I ne'er again shall see her. O thou mine heir of Naples and of Milan, what strange fish hath made his meal on thee? Now, Caliban has been referred to as a fish. But at the end of the play, Prospero says, Caliban is mine. I own this one. Okay. And I think we can see this reference to what fish has swallowed up Ferdinand? Prospero. But the question, but that's a side issue. The real question is, Alonzo says, should I have married my daughter to the king of Tunis? Now, we don't need to know that. This is, plays no, no role in the, what we thought was the plot of this play. We don't ha Alonzo didn't have to go to Tunis and marry his daughter off. Why is this in here? To tell us something about this play. Sebastian says, Sir, you may thank yourself for this great loss. And, and Alonzo says, please, don't make it worse than it is. But Sebastian presses the point. He says, you were kneeled to and importuned otherwise by all of us. That, that is, not to marry your daughter to the king of Tunis. And the fair soul herself, he says, weighed between loathness and obedience at which end of the beam should bow. Clarabelle, Alonzo's daughter, was, had to be dragged off the ship at Tunis. Well, why was he willing to drag her off the ship at Tunis? Political marriages. That's why. It was part of the dip diplomatic uh, uh, repertoire of the time. Clarabelle was unwilling. And that's what's revealed in this text. Unwilling to consent to a political marriage. Now, that raises the second Dido and Aeneas legend. In the second Dido and Aeneas legend, Dido, faithful to her dead husband, Sacchaeus, is building Carthage and so on, but she is uh, constantly faithful to Sacchaeus. And a foreign king comes and is forcing her into a political marriage. And she commits suicide rather than, than, be, than submit to a political marriage. So now we have the other problem for Prospero. Will Miranda agree to this marriage, which is essential to his design? And his design now is to reconcile the two kingdoms. 
And now we begin to look back, you look back on the play and you realize Prospero has orchestrated this love affair so that now she's not only willing to consent to it, but it has become worldly wise, capable of being a politician's wife. Stephen Orgel, who's written a very interesting analysis of this play, he says, Shakespeare, in the development of his comedy, increasingly finds the promised restoration and marriages of comic conclusions inadequate to reconcile the conflicts that the comedy has generated. Prospero had said of Caliban, he's a devil, a born devil, on whom my pains humanely taken, all, all, quite lost. And as with age his body uglier grows, so his mind cankers. And later on he says, I own him. But if we're talking about aging and mind cankering, I think we're talking about Prospero-Shakespeare. There's some part of him and us that is recalcitrant to all this. And at the end of the play, the pathos of the play is that, is that Prospero knows, realizes what he's done and what it has cost him. He set out with the best of intentions to resolve the conflict between himself and his political enemy and to establish a marriage between his, uh, his daughter and the, and the prince of Naples. Best of intentions, or we can impute them to him. But in the course of it, he himself got tangled in the mimetic rivalries and began to manipulate what would have been sacramental gestures, and they turned into another version of the same old thing. And in the course of it, he lost his daughter. Her innocence was lost in a much more fundamental way than just sexually. And so now he is in another mood altogether, and at the very end, he gives an epilogue. Now my charms are all o'erthrown, and what strength I have is my own, which is most faint. Now tis true I must be here confined by you or sent to Naples. Let me not, since I have my dukedom got and pardoned the deceiver, dwell in this bare island by your spell, but release me from my bands with the help of your good hand. Gentle breath of yours, my sails must fill or else my project fails, which was to please. Now... I want spirits to enforce art to enchant. I want, meaning I don't have. And my ending is despair. Unless I be relieved by prayer, which pierces so that it assaults mercy itself and frees all faults. As you from crimes would pardoned be, let your indulgence set me free. Prospero is too implicated in the mimetic system to preside over sacraments which are designed to extricate people from it. Alonzo said, This is as strange a maze as e'er men trod. And there is in this business more than nature was ever conduct of. Some oracle must rectify our knowledge. I think this is Shakespeare winking and saying, You're not going to get this play. You're not going to get it. And Gonzalo, here's a maze trod indeed through forthrights and meanders. Well, 
if we can't get the meaning of the play from looking at its uh, prestigious characters, maybe we can get something from looking at its less less prestigious or sort of unscrupulous ones. Stefano Trinculo Caliban stumble onto the scene after they've been wandering around the island. Caliban was going to lead them, of course, and they got lost immediately. And they're complaining to Caliban that he got, got them lost. And Trinculo says, but to lose our bottles in the pool, he says, that's the problem. It's bad enough to get lost, but we lost our bottles in the pool. And Stefano says, there is not only disgrace and dishonor in that monster, but an infinite loss. An infinite loss. We lost our bottle. Being lost is a synonym for losing our intoxication. What they're complaining of is that they have lost their source of intoxication. And with time, they'll have to sober up with all of the consequences. Perhaps Prospero has lost the last of his intoxication. He didn't. He began this play much more sober uh, of the of the intoxication of his time, which is Renaissance humanism and the hopes that it gave rise to. Gonzalo, you know, was completely drunk with that at the beginning of the play. Prospero, not so much so, but there is still that lingering influence. And I want to show you where where it dies. You see, the transformation that Alonzo experienced had a prerequisite that he put off his hope and keep it no longer for his flatterer. And the Enlightenment hope, the Renaissance hope, which then the, the Enlightenment hope, is somehow that we'll be able to just, uh, with good intentions and... Uh, a little bit of effort, would be able to work ourselves out of this mess. And Prospero has been trying to do that. And I think Shakespeare's trying, been trying to do that. Now, when it's all over, uh, the, play, the, the results of what has happened on the island are appraised by three people, or the important appraisals are three people. Gonzalo, who is still caught up in, in this hope, what we think of now today is inevitable progress. And Gonzalo says, ever the romantic, he says, was Milan thrust from Milan that his issue should become king of Naples? Oh, rejoice beyond the common joy and set it down with gold on lasting pillars. In one voyage did Clarabelle, her husband, find at Tunis. No mention of how she had to be dragged from the ship. And Ferdinand, his brother, found a wife where he himself was lost. Prospero, his dukedom, in a poor isle, and all of us ourselves when no man was his own. Now, there's, a, there's truth to that. At one level, there's some truth to that, but I don't think it's Shakespeare's truth. Miranda has another estimation that's very much in concert with that. Miranda is standing now in the presence of these people who we have just seen to be capable of murderous conspiracies at the drop of a hat and, uh, and, and perfidies and lying and so on. And she says, Oh, wonder, how many goodly creatures are there here? 
how beauteous mankind is. Oh, brave new world that has such people in it. And Prospero says, tis new to thee, tis new to thee. Now, when Miranda starts her little speech, she says, oh, wonder. Shakespeare lights the fuse on the bomb that is sitting under Renaissance humanism. And that fuse is sputtering while she gives her speech. Oh, wonder. How many goodly creatures are there here? How beauteous mankind is. Oh, brave new world that has such people in it. And when Prospero says, tis new to thee, it goes off. It's, to me, it is devastating insight. And there's a tremendous pathos in that. Because Prospero genuinely, you get the sense of the first of the play, he really wanted to set things right. And there is that moment of forgiveness that has, a, has an effect of forgiveness. But then he put on the hat and the rapier and he began to manipulate things he had actually been manipulating before. And he realizes that what he's produced is another version of the same old thing. I would like to end and pour blessings on Prospero's head by quoting Paul's letter to the Romans. Paul said, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do not do what I want, then it is no longer I that do it, but sin which dwells within me. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. And I think that's what Prospero is discovering, Shakespeare is discovering, all of us discover when we come face to face with the problem of original sin, if that's one way of talking about it. And Prospero, at the end of the play, says, my ending is despair. Unless I be relieved by prayer, which pierces so that it assaults mercy itself and frees all fault. To the extent that this is true of Shakespeare, it's a great warning to us, maybe more to me than you. And that is that it's very important to be able to sort out these, this problem of, the, of what I've called the problem of the sociodrama and to realize how powerful it is and how it works and sort of become a student of its functioning patterns. But that is not the same thing as getting out of it. So my conclusion would be that decoding the mimetic melodramas and recognizing their patterns and absurdity and power of hypnosis and so on is not the same thing as God-centeredness, which is the only realistic alternative to them. This concludes Reflections on Shakespeare's The Tempest. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. 
That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work.